Welcome to season two of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, burnout survivor, behavior change scientist, and TEDx speaker. Please take a moment to watch my TEDx talk. The YouTube link is in the show description, and my talk is called How to Stop Burnout Before It Starts. On this podcast, I interview international burnout experts, HR and DEI leaders, and lifestyle coaches to find out how we can create individual, organizational, and cultural change to prevent burnout. When mums thrive, the world benefits. This week, I'm talking about improving science and medicine by preventing burnout in STEM mums with global scientific leader, Dr. Isabel Torres. Dr. Isabel Torres, who leads the advocacy organization Mothers in Science, has been collecting data and providing solutions through science, stories, networking, toolkits, and policies. I wanted to speak with Isabel because as a mom in STEM, which includes medicine, I wasn't aware of the gender barriers and bias I faced. I assumed I was somehow failing, but Isabel and others have shown that mothers are penalized in their scientific careers, but fathers are not. This difference points to a systemic problem, which Isabel is fighting to dismantle. In honor of this discussion of mothers in science, next week's mini episode will focus on the science of burnout and burnout solutions. You can find Isabel's key takeaways on the episode website, drjacquelinecurr.com. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Isabel as much as I did. I'm Isabel Torres. I have four children. I'm Portuguese uh, and I'm based in France. And I'm currently co-founder and CEO of Mothers in Science and a scientific editor. Great. Thank you so much for your time today, Isabel. So yes, please describe your journey to where you are now in your career. Okay. First of all, thanks so much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. So I started with a very typical academic career. I did a master's, uh, a PhD uh, in genetics at University of Cambridge. Then I moved on to a postdoc also in Cambridge at the Laboratory of Molecular Biology. And then I moved to France to follow the father of my children, who is also an academic. And I changed careers. So I was already questioning what I wanted to do during my PhD and my postdoc. And during my postdoc, I fell in love with science communication. I started doing science outreach. I launched a few projects. I really enjoyed it. And so after moving here, I started writing freelance and also editing because it gave me the flexibility with the kids. In the meantime, I had three children and now I am also CEO of Mothers in Science. I still do science communication on the side. I have a website called Pretty Smart Science, and I'm a science editor. So lots of things, not a typical linear path. And I think so many of us um, don't have a linear path. There was a lovely analogy recently that it's like a river and that we're taking parts of the um, banks of the river with us as we go and carving our way. I like that because I often described it as like a mountain with a lot of bumps on the way. So I think a river was a nice an analogy. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit nicer than bumps. So tell me a little bit, what was your motivation to start Mothers in Science? And tell the audience a little bit about what it is and what it does. 
So Medicine Science is a nonprofit based in France, an international nonprofit, so we are global, that aims to raise awareness of, of the challenges that mothers in, in STEM face. So STEM includes medicine as well. And we really advocate for workplace equity and inclusion of parents and and caregivers, which is something that is really lacking. So I, how did it start? I always had this little bug. I was always very passionate to fight for social justice and in particular women's rights. So I started promoting women in STEM with my science communication, with my website. I interviewed women in STEM and tried to increase visibility, but I always felt something was missing. And given my own experience as a mother in, in science, I felt we were not talking enough about these issues. And there was a lot of emphasis on initiatives to encourage more women into STEM careers, but not enough looking at retention. And I knew motherhood was a big issue. Uh, it's just that nobody was talking about it. So I approached Sonal. We had met online, actually. And she had been through similar issues in her career and had a similar feeling. So we decided to start a nonprofit to address these issues. Great. Thank you. And we'll get into a little bit, maybe some of your experiences and the experiences of the mothers that you have surveyed. But first, why should listeners who maybe aren't in STEM or academia, why should society as a whole care about the gender disparities that there are in STEM? I think for two reasons. One is that, especially as the pandemic has shown, we need science, we need medicine, we need technology, we need the STEM sector. Just look at how quickly the COVID vaccine was developed. And we know that diversity is good for business. There are many studies showing that companies that have more diversity, so a larger representation of women, of, of, of ethnical uh, minorities, they perform better, they're more profitable. And there's no reason why this shouldn't be the same for the same sector. And science, medicine is all about asking questions and finding solutions to problems. And if you think about it, if you have 10 very different people, they will come up with 10 different ideas. And if you have 10 very similar people, you're unlikely to have a new innovative solution. So diversity is good for science and to advance science. That's the first reason. But for me personally, the most important reason is that why shouldn't we have equal representation of women and men in science? We should care about these issues as a society because it's the right thing to do. And I think in our day and age, it's really time to go back to our values and the, the basic idea that everyone should have the same rights and opportunities. So I think, yes, as a society, we should care that the STEM sector and any other sector has equal representation of any group in our society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And having come from academia myself, when I came out of academia, I kept thinking what's going on in academia isn't really relevant. It's the ivory tower. But then actually someone reflected back to me that academia is the education of our next generation. And if there aren't female role models in that place, then how are women going to see that they can go into education and and be mothers and have an education too? So that to me was great to hear that and think about it because I just saw us as being this kind of closed group. But I think the other part is I have been doing a lot of reading around 
disparities in treatments for women. And essentially they're saying that women's health issues will not be solved unless there are women scientific and health researchers. So that to me were two reasons where I started to think this is really important. I need to also include guests like yourself who are focusing on mothers in science, including medicine, because yeah, I I think, as you say, without diverse representation, we won't get diverse answers. But I also think without women leading in this area, women's issues will not be solved. The data shows that. So I'm really passionate about this. (laughs) It's a vicious circle. It's until we have women in leadership, as you say, they won't care. People won't care about issues that affect women. And when I say women, I say any other uh, marginalized group. So definitely equal representation is important. So is the motherhood penalty worse in STEM and academia than other industries? There is one thing that seems to be clearly worse in academia. One indicator that shows that it's worse is that women in the STEM sector, in academia in particular, tend to have children later than in the rest of the population. This is based on US data. So in the US, the average age for women to have children is around 26, whereas in academia is around 30 or 31. But if you look at men are having children at the same age, whether they are in academia or not. So clearly there's a problem there that at least women are delaying or restricting training from having children in these sectors. And this is what we found in our survey. We asked this question and this is what we found. We found there's a problem with lack of flexibility and academia has this need to be present at work, which some of the sectors have, but a lot don't. You need to go to conferences, you need to network, you need to show up to to have collaborations, to work on your projects. So this is very important for career progression. And when you have children, if you're less available, if you have to leave work sooner, if you can't go to conferences, this will have a a big impact on career. So that's one thing particular to academia. And then the lack of flexibility, because this is a a male-dominated field. So it's a field, it's a system that is designed for someone who doesn't have any other responsibilities. So either someone single who doesn't have to care for children or family or someone who has a partner at home, typically the wife looking after the children. So you have to be available 24-7 in academia. And this obviously isn't compatible with having a family. However, fathers still make it. And this is the problem. Why are men continuing having their career and progressing when they have children and, and women don't? And this is what is telling us that there is a structural problem and there are barriers, there are gender specific. And I can um, speak to that too in terms of, of conferences and just even meetings as a whole. I remember one of my postdocs, we were hosting an event at our university and one of my postdocs was breastfeeding. So at lunchtime, she had to go and, and pump And the male students got to go have lunch with these other academics that were in town. And that lunch meeting led for one of the male students getting a position, actually a paid internship position at one of those international universities. And I remember my postdoc saying, I missed out on networking because I had to go pump. And so definitely women were so aware of missing those opportunities. And then I had lots of other mentees 
who were junior faculty who would talk about the males that they knew in their field that could go to every single conference and they could maybe go to one a year and that the men were just at every conference they noticed that those men were going and that they were getting those networking opportunities and I remember talking and saying what can we do as women we could make sure that when we go to a conference that we promote the work of the women that aren't there we could do a little email exchange afterwards saying here are the things we learned um, from that conference so that the the women didn't feel like they were missing out so much but it was just such a frustration for everyone. And to be honest, how I approached it was I said, I think it's going to take us longer to get there. But when we get to that table, we will have so much a broader and well-rounded experience to be able to support those who come from after us that it will be okay. But then I got really cynical about that. And that's really partly why I ended up leaving is I started to realize that probably wouldn't happen. And you can see that all the effort was on us. And certainly for me as a mentor, that I was having to deal with those types of issues. I wasn't dealing with academic and educational knowledge issues. I was dealing with the issues that the women were facing in terms of how much harder it was for them to progress. So it was very real. And so this is exactly the sort of thing that we hear in our community, all, all these differences, experience going to conferences, missing opportunities. We hear this a lot. And it's most of the time is related to motherhood. There is pressure for women to make certain choices. And this is the sort of myths we have to break. Why are fathers going to all conferences and mothers choose to go to just one or none? So there are, there, there are obviously pressures on women to make these choices, which are very internalized as well. But there are also external bias. And this is something we measured in our survey that is it is very important that we have evidence of, of bias and discrimination uh, directed at mothers, because I think nobody believes <laughs> that there is, even mothers, I've experienced it, you probably uh, have as well, and but we're just not aware because we don't talk about it, and we found really widespread bias and discrimination, and really extreme situations where mothers lose their jobs during maternity leave, they're excluded from projects. Because if you are in a workplace where people will not understand that you can't go to a conference or you can't go to a meeting because you have a caregiving responsibility, this excludes all parents and caregivers. So we need to change attitudes and behaviors, but we need to change the system so that it's more human, so that we understand that personal life impacts on work and you will have better employees if you take that into account and if you offer flexibility and empathy. And, and this is the message we're trying to convey and to push for policies and for a better workplace that accommodates these problems, not just for parents and caregivers, mental health. You can have a child with disability. You can have a disability that is not visible. All these things may impact your presence at work. And if the work doesn't accommodate for that, you'll be excluded and the workplace will lose talent. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, I got a bit passionate. No, that's <laughs> what I want to hear. So maybe one of the things that I was thinking about too, given the focus of this podcast is burnout. So do you think some of these biases and the experiences of women in science are leading to burnout? Oh, for sure. Definitely. I think women, mothers have been on the edge of burnout for a long time. The pandemic just made that visible and and worse. But if you ask women who leave academia, most of them will be mothers and most of them will say they're just tired and they, they just can't cope because they are doing more. And this is what we have to think about. Why isn't this happening to fathers? And this is what I always ask mothers. When they say, I can't cope, it's too much, it's too demanding, um, it's too hard to combine motherhood and a STEM career. And I always ask, is your husband coping? He seems to be coping well. Or why are the men in your lab coping and the women are not coping? And this is to try to get them to think about where the problem really lies. Because there are all these motherhood myths that it's impossible to combine motherhood and work. And... Again, the problem isn't having children. The problem isn't being a woman. It's just that the system and the societal societal pressures are pushing us to do everything. Women are doing up to three times more childcare and housework. Women are looking after sick parents. Women are having to do extra work in the workplace because we have gender barriers. We have bias and discrimination. So we have to work 10 times more to prove ourselves. So All of these barriers, even if they are small, uh, over time, they will lead to burnout because we just have to do more and more. And then because there's a lot of isolation, because there's a lot of taboo about motherhood, because we know deep inside that if we say we're not coping, we know this will be used against us. And because we know there's maternity bias and just being a mother, there is a bias that people will think we are not as competent. This is one of the maternal law issues. So we tend to hide our motherhood and we tend to try to compensate and do more and work harder, but it never works because the problem isn't us. And all of the uh, the advice, I get so mad when I see so many articles, how to improve your work-life balance, how to improve your work-life balance, how to beat imposter syndrome, how to become more confident at work. And all of these issues and advice and initiatives are focused on fixing women. And again, women are not the problem or mothers are not the problem. So what we really try is to raise awareness of, of these issues. We put the focus on the structural problems, the real barriers that mothers are encountering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the um, metrics that I noticed in your summaries that you have on the Mothers in Science website that were very helpful to read about was that publication rates pre and post motherhood is one metric that shows disparities. Before motherhood, men and women are publishing at equal rates. That shows that we're perfectly capable of (laughs) standing our own and succeeding in this field. But then after motherhood, women, mothers start to drop off in those rates. And publication, they always say publish or perish for academia. So it's a huge performance indicator in academia. But then is it flawed? And what could be other measures that mothers can demonstrate in academia to to also show that they are contributing and and making um, significant improvements? 
Yes, so this is a big problem and also another taboo problem because obviously we don't want to admit that we are producing less. We decided to try to quantify this anyway because we want to know if the problem really existed, which it wasn't really known at the time in terms of scientific productivity. And so we can address the causes. Why are women producing less? And we do see mothers publishing less than fathers, and this increases over time. This has been confirmed recently in a study, and it, it is a decent indicator of productivity, but you are right, it's not sufficient. So in our survey, we try to look at other things. As I said, we try to measure bias and discrimination. And if we, for example, then the plan is to, to, to correlate these two things. So if we can say, I don't know, in this country, there's huge pervasive bias and discrimination against mothers, does this correlate with less productivity? We can also look at childcare. We also look at childcare. If you have a uh, lack of childcare, does this correlate with, with scientific productivity? So this is the sort of thing we're trying to find. The other thing we want is to advocate for funding agencies and research institutions to evaluate other measures of, of performance. So for funding agencies, things like teaching, mentoring, participation in committees and in initiatives to promote women and minorities. Typically, women in STEM tend to do more of this unpaid and unrecognized work. And we are trying to convince funding agencies to you know, include this in grant evaluations because it is really work and it is important. And in terms of research institutions, also for promotions and hiring to get tenure, to get jobs, this should also count because normally people are just evaluated in terms of publications, like you said, the track record and research projects. And we think this other work, which is very valuable, should also count. And we are pushing for agencies and institutions to have measurable evaluation systems because in academia, everything is very opaque very informal. A lot of the, the hiring is based on letters of recommendation and we're trying to make it more transparent and, and measurable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to have more objective measures. Exactly. It's definitely a difficult one because again, my husband was always so surprised that, that leaders in academia were never measured for how they led their team. And so often students and, and staff even are not treated well. We're not taught how to be managers, but yet we depend on, on those people so much for our research to actually get done. And I spent so much time trying to make sure that I had a team that worked well together and that felt accomplished and rewarded and motivated. But again, those efforts were never part of any equation in terms of leadership. And yeah, obviously without that team, I couldn't have got the publications I got. But again, how they were treated wasn't part of that equation. So many um, academics can succeed without that. Yes, we also want to advocate for accountability. So as academia is quite toxic at the moment, there's a lot of bullying, there's high rates of sexual harassment. And now we know also of pregnancy and maternity discrimination in one way or maybe the only way to to tackle this problem is to make people accountable 
and we want to push for policies that, you know, for funding agencies to make people accountable so that if you have, like you say, a toxic environment or if you have a good lab, that will also count to your evaluation somehow. So we're trying to create policies um, based on our data in order to reward or punish people who are not good leaders, you say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why do you think these barriers for mums feel so hidden and how can we promote the issues so that women themselves and then men also recognize them? You have been using the terms bias and discrimination. Can you give us some more really specific examples or stories or even from your own experience so that women and men can go, okay, what does that mean? Because I think it is hard for people to know in daily experiences, what does it actually look like? The motherhood penalty in general means that if you look at it in any sector, mothers are less likely to be hired or promoted. They have lower salaries. So the salary gap between mothers and men is is the highest. So uh, a mother will earn less than a single woman who will learn less than a man and so forth. And there's a study that shows for each child, a woman is penalized by 5% of her salary. So less likely to be hired, less likely to be promoted, lower salaries. Women are generally, mothers are generally perceived to be less competent, less committed to their work, less available just because they are mothers. So it's a lot about assumptions. And we're all victim of this. We do it too. Women do it as well to other women. So basically, we just assume that mothers will be more devoted to the family than to their career. Because this is what society is telling us. So I can give a few examples. Most of these things are very subtle and people are not aware. They are not aware they are biased and they are not aware they are being victim of a bias. For example, are being excluded. A lot of mothers in our community, and I felt that as well, somehow after becoming a mother, I didn't know it at the time, but you just feel people see you differently. You feel something has changed. You feel that you're no longer seen as one of the best, that you're no longer in the run, let's say. It's like, I describe it as suddenly I just went to the second rank of people in the lab, whereas before I could see people, could see I had potential to be a group leader and have my own lab. And then, I don't know, that seemed to be gone. And I was being in my experience I was pushed to third fourth author when I had clearly done work to deserve more and women are excluded from projects uh, collaborators push you away from projects and a lot of times you won't receive conf- invitations to go to a conference whereas before your PI would invite you all the time so these things are very subtle and they can be gradual as well and a lot of the times, we don't realize, and women will tend to blame themselves. And this is what happened to me, what happens to most women, because you have your baby, things change, you change, you're tired, so you convince that, oh, I'm not doing enough. And instead of seeing these biases, the tendency is to blame yourself, and you just start working more and more. And then you go into this circle of working more and try to prove yourself more and, and burn out. And this is what leads women to make the choice of, of leaving, because we do more and more and more, and you keep on facing these barriers because people keep on seeing you as a mother once you're born you have this stamp on your forehead I'm a mother (laughs) and I'm no longer competent this is what people see and then you do more and more you do more in the home and women just get burned out and they see this choice I can't do it I have to choose either family or work 
and because we are socialized to put others first, to be selfless, to put family first, our partner first, women will tend to sacrifice their own career. They will take a, a job that demands less work or they will work part-time and reduce their working hours. They will basically put career on the side. So these are just some examples. And what we can do is to talk about these things. Talk about it. Talk about your own experiences. And, and if you do, you will see that so many women went through the same. This is how I realized of all this was when I started talking about it and I started realizing that so many other women had been through the same. And then you realize, oh, actually, it isn't me. <laughs> there's something wrong. And because mothers are very isolated and there's this stigma there's this stigma that mothers are making these choices because, I don't know, because it's nature that we are genetically predisposed to be mothers. And this is not right. This is not correct. And fathers, uh, men can be excellent fathers and excellent caregivers as well. And so we need to talk about these issues, to raise awareness, to speak up. If we see, if we encounter these biases, we have to speak up. Uh, because most people will do it without realizing. They just assume. Another thing, just another example that is very common is uh, a lot of these networking events can happen out of hours and your boss won't invite you simply because he thinks you need to go home to get your kids or, and just saying, no, actually, can you invite me? Don't assume that I can't go. You know, simple things like this can make a difference. Mm -hmm. So thank you for those examples. And as you said, how do we make this now apparent? That's one thing I've been thinking about is how do we frame this message in a way that then girls, women are not put off from applying to jobs in science and academia because we want them to be there. People have to be aware again that having children isn't the problem. Most people will eventually become parents. It's, I don't know, 90% or over 90% of, of, of people will become parents, which means that most workers will be parents uh, or caregivers. We cannot continue having a workplace that is hostile for parents and caregivers. So people need to be aware of this. So instead of, when I see girls asking me, should I go to a STEM career? Instead of just saying, yeah, you can do it all. You can do everything. I try to explain it is hard. It is a male-dominated field. There are several problems, but you can do it. Uh, I have many moms at the beginning of the career. I don't know. Should I carry on? Is it too big price to pay? I won't have time for my children. And it's just explaining, being realistic and explaining the problems do exist, that we are trying to fix them and we will fix them and to be prepared to talk about the issues, to be prepared when we encounter these issues. And to not blame yourself, which <laughs> uh, is the first thing mothers will do is to blame themselves because society is, is putting the blame on them. So, yeah, so I always say it is possible. If you're passionate, you should go, you should do it. You, you can combine everything. All fathers can do it. So there's no reason why mothers couldn't do it. And there's many mothers who can do it. We have published over 100 journeys, moms in STEM who, who tell their stories on our website. You can find many examples of successful mothers in STEM. It is important to be aware of, of these obstacles and be prepared to, to fight them. Right. And to call them out in the moment. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's one of the things is if your mentality is to blame yourself when it happens in the moment, one, you're questioning, okay, is it, yes, maybe I am too ambitious. Maybe I am too aggressive. So you're not 
then knowing that it's actually not your issue, but then also you don't have the skills to to deal with it. So I know certainly from, for example, an organization in the US Lean In has done these gender bias cards where you can actually learn about the the issues, the, the, the percentages at which women are called aggressive versus men, and then what to say at that moment in time. And one of the main things is just, would you say this to a man? And, and just that disruption can sometimes be at least the start of changing this narrative. But I, I would love to hear more about some of the examples that you've been learning and promoting from different countries about how to solve this problem. I'm really excited to us think about moving into the solutions. There hasn't been a lot of done in these issues. This is why we started organization. What we want to do, what we're trying to do, we started by collecting the data which was much needed because we won't be able to persuade anyone to to make structural changes unless we show that the problem exists and we show the hard data so now we have that we are about to publish and now we want to start creating new solutions because as i mentioned a lot of the work that has been done before us is more focused on encouraging more women to to pursue stem careers and now we want to talk about retention because now we know that the major exit of women from the STEM pipeline is after having children. It's the same for other sectors. So we have to start speaking more about retention and policies to retain women. So now we have identified the issues with our survey because we didn't know. We have some clues from other sectors, but we, we really need to know what are the specific issues in STEM. So we have quantified them, we have identified them, we have quantified them, and now we can start drafting policy changes. So the next step will be to, to convince the leaders in STEM to implement the changes. So we'll make suggestions of new policies and, and hopefully they will do it. And we are trying to create a movement, a global movement of, of mothers in STEM and organizations to address these issues and to start putting some pressure. So we have drafted a sort of policy recommendation kit for funding agencies and we'll do one for workplace as well for research institutions and then we'll really start to push for change. One thing in our organization that we think is we are creating policy kits. Of, so a kit of recommendations for new policies, also policies that do exist already and where we know it works. There's a few, not many. I can give a few examples. For example, there are a few funding agencies in various countries offering extensions in grant applications. So if you have a maternity break, you can have an extra year to apply uh, for a grant for the for the early researchers. So that's great. So we would like that every research institute, every funding agency does that because it's essential. There's also support for childcare, a fundamental. We need to more support for single moms, for single parents. There are some institutions that offer childcare in situ, in situ childcare facilities. Some offer lactation facilities, not as many as you would think, something as simple as a lactation facility we did a small poll within our community and only about half of institutions offered lactation facilities which is appalling so you know things like this that do already exist and there are some efforts but we really want to create new solutions so we are leading a global movement that we hope will get momentum and really grow to push the leaders in stem to implement structural change and we are doing a fundraising policy kit for funding agencies. And we'll do one for the workplace as well with recommendations for policies. And then we'll 
go one by one and try to, to persuade them to do the changes. And we're doing this because we think is really essential that we get together and we unite and get organized to push for change. Because if we work independently, it will be very difficult. They're very difficult to make systemic change. And some of the things that we are asking for is accountability for bias and discrimination. There is so much evidence that grant applications, there's still a lot of bias, even if you have 50-50% ratio of, of male to female applicants men will get a lot more grants. And if you look at the quality of research, it is similar. So still a lot of bias that has to be tackled. There's not enough flexibility, the deadlines, personal events, parental leaves are not taking into account. So we want to, like I mentioned before, other type of work being evaluated, like mentoring, teaching, that sort of thing, reviewing a lot of work that women do more than men. So trying to change the, the, the funding system and then the workplace to, to support mothers and caregivers. Mm-hmm. And some of the things I learned about that, again, I was so surprised learning about it afterwards. <laughs> I was just like, goodness, I wish I had known this information at the time. So one of the ones was some of the papers that we work on are blinded. Hopefully then there, there wouldn't be bias creeping in, but that's not always the case. But essentially even women within their own papers are less likely to cite their own work where men are more likely to cite their own work. And this self-citation bias can contribute then to men being seen as, but basically knowing that there's a, a list of the top 1% of scientists who have been cited but that does include self-citation in there that that is definitely an issue so again encouraging women to know that they should be citing their their own work as well or taking that self-citations out of the equation was another suggestion that they had absolutely and also there are few women applying for grants generally and for jobs so there are studies that show that men to tend to apply for jobs even if they are not fully qualified if they don't uh, fill in all the prerequisites of the job ad and women will only apply if they have all the skills that I mentioned in the job ad. But again, I think all of this is not just about telling women, oh, you should do this and that. Women have this sort of behaviors because they are punished. We are punished if we are confident, as you say, we will be perceived as arrogant. All of these behaviors for self-promotion we, men will be, be rewarded and women will be punished. So it's, it's not surprising that women tend to even hide their achievements or be more modest instead of, I think we have to tell women, yeah, you have to be more bold and etc. But we have to tell everyone because it's not just men doing this bias, stop punishing women for being successful, basically. And again, when you mentioned that about the difference in in quality of the work, that there was no difference in the quality of the work that women were producing, but men were more often likely to get funded. I had also come across some research saying that women were more likely to make amendments and put more effort and made more changes to a paper. So in the publication process, for people that don't know this, we we submit publications and we get reviews and often in those reviews are suggestions for changes. So they had evidence that women were making more changes, were being more responsive to these critical reviews. And therefore they concluded, 
were doing better work because they were listening to the critiques and, and thinking about them more carefully and being more responsive. So in some ways they were saying women were doing better quality work because of that. So yeah, it's just fascinating to learn some of these very specific issues and to think about them. Definitely. And there's also the other way around. So we had a cell editor in our conference. We had our first conference this year in May. And she said they're really making huge efforts to, to have more women editors and to encourage women to apply because they have fewer women submitting papers. That's the first thing. And she says, when papers are rejected, a lot of men male authors will write rebuttals and they will struggle. They will try and fight to get the paper accepted and women never do. She says women are much more likely to just give up and, and don't try. And men will have that confidence to try and <laughs> go against the editor's decision. And, and, and they want to persuade women to try and, and, and keep going. So uh, just another example of this internalized complex that women have, unfortunately. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, Isabel, for you in your career, this experience now of leading change, it's so inspirational. But what have you learned about some of the most effective strategies? You mentioned you have a conference, you have so much, many resources on the website. How, how do you lead this movement and what else do you want to do going forward? So I believe very much in collaboration and working together. A, a big effort we do organization is try to work with other organizations and try to reach out to other to mothers listening to what the problems are we had a survey we run polls so I, I really think it's important to listen to people to their problems and their ideas and I really want to unite people who like us are vocal and are trying to find solutions and to make change because I think together we can go so much further and fast. And this is why we're trying to, to build this global movement and try to encourage organizations and mothers around the world to, to work together and to partner to try to create solutions and push for change. Because one of the things we found in our surveys that these problems are universal. Wherever you go from Africa to Scandinavia, where they are supposed to be so progressive in terms of gender equality, we find the same issues. We find maternal wall, pervasive bias and discrimination, the same barriers. And I also want to talk about, to start the difficult discussions, because a lot of these discussions are difficult. A lot of things we will have to change as women as well. And things, for example, like parental leave, it's a very tricky subject. In the US, you are discussing now, there's no parental leave at all. There are countries that have very long parental leaves and they are not beneficial for women either. Long maternity leave means you're going to be away from work. It means you're going to have a huge salary penalty. It means it's going to be hard to get back into the career back into work, you probably will lose opportunities for reaching a leadership position. So some of these family-friendly policies are actually increasing inequalities. And these countries, they are very progressive, they say, and they encourage women to take long leaves and stay at home. This is actually old-fashioned, and this is actually going back to the old breadwinner homemaker model. But if you speak to the moms, 
they won't like it if you say, yeah, maybe you should be going back to work sooner. So it is very difficult. So obviously we want men to take longer leaves. What we hope to have at some point is equal parental leaves between fathers and mothers. Another issue that is difficult to speak about is part-time jobs, part-time work. Again, very sensitive because women like to work part-time to have more time for to be with the family. But we have to ask ourselves, why don't men take part-time work? And to be realistic and say this will affect career progression. Again, you'll have salary penalties. You'll be away from work. You will miss out on opportunities. It will be difficult to reach a leadership position if you are away. And instead of trying to get more part-time opportunities, think about other solutions like remote working, which we know it works. The pandemic shows it works. If you have flexibility, you can still produce as much and have time to manage your family as well and think about why mothers need part-time and fathers don't and think that okay the problem the real problem is that we are doing more we are doing more at home and try to tackle that instead yeah so we're also trying to start these difficult discussions because we want to create solutions that work we don't want more band-aid solutions. They are just fixing symptoms and will not fix the root problems. So yes, so that involves doing research, coming up with new ideas, discussing them and raising awareness. That's great. Thank you so much for those very specific examples. It's so helpful. So again, my background is a behavior change scientist. And so one of the things I like to ask my guests is, what would you suggest today that you could say it could be for a mom, but you could also say, okay, if you had a department head today or a science leader today, what would you ask them to do? What change can they really start to make right away? If it's a research institution, so for funding agencies I already mentioned, for research institutions offer equal paid parental leave, very basic, including students and postdocs, staff on fixed term contracts, because students and postdocs often are left out of any, any such policy because they are not considered real staff. And that affected my maternity leave, right? I was a postdoc, yep. I same, same as me. I missed out on my PhD maternity leave and my postdoc maternity leave because they happen at the end of the contract, so you cannot use them. It's completely ridiculous. So research institutions should make sure their employees have these rights. Also, you could give funding or hire technical support to cover maternity leave absence so that you don't stop your research while you're away. One big problem in academia is when moms who take longer leaves are away, the PI will give the project to someone else, they'll be excluded, or they will not be first authors anymore, or they have to stop work. And if you lose a few months of research, it can really impact progress, especially if you have a two-year contract or a three-year contract. So it's very easy. You can just hire a student or a technician to continue doing experiments while you're away. It's, it's, it's not complicated to do. You can also allow employees to stay in touch and keep them informed while on maternity leave. That's another problem with, with parental leave. You're away and legally in most countries, you cannot be in touch. So you're completely out and a lot of things can happen in a few months. So it's, you can just stay in touch or keep them informed so they can continue being involved. By choice, you should not force anyone to work during maternity leave. This is not what I'm saying. At least find a way to keep them you know, in the loop. Establishing high-quality lactation facilities. Again, 
very simple to do and so important. So in our survey, we found that for mothers who take longer leaves, 28% said one of the reasons is because they wanted to breastfeed, which means that they didn't feel comfortable or they didn't think there were good or any lactation facilities at work. So there's a lot of stigma and terrible attitudes towards moms who are pumping or breastfeeding at work, or there's no facilities at all. 28% is a lot. <laughs> it's almost a third. It means that if we had lactation facilities, you could have moms going back to work sooner and not miss out on opportunities. And then implement and inform measures to eliminate pregnancy and maternity bias and discrimination, get people accountable, clear guidelines for hiring, for promotion, for evaluation. There's other ideas we could suggest. And, and childcare support, offer childcare support or childcare facilities in situ. And including for babysitter or nannies for out-of-office hours work. And this is a problem in academia and also in medicine that we have to work crazy hours. And <laughs> if you offer childcare support only for nursery, for daycare that closes at five or six, then you won't be able to attend networking events or conferences in the weekends and things like that. I think these are such great ideas and they're just making me think back, Isabel. Like you say, my husband always so surprised. He's like, why do conferences in your field go over the weekend? And I was like, that's what it is because most of the people organizing that don't have kids and that was the traditional way. But there's a couple of things you mentioned there. So I was going for this $10 million grant. It's a type of grant called the PO1 in the US. And normally the grants are about two and a half million dollars, but, uh, but this $10 million grant involved having three research projects together and having supportive cause research cause that support them. And our head of department wanted us to go for these larger grants. So for six months, I worked every Sunday to lead that project and get it funded. And so for six months, I paid a nanny on Sundays to be there for my kids. And that came out of my pocket entirely. And, and it never occurred to me that I should be asking for that support. But actually, when I did at one stage ask for an assistant, because I felt myself just losing it. And I said, please, can I have an assistant? And they said, you can have an assistant for your teaching roles. And I was like, I don't need an assistant for a teaching role. I need an assistant for me to manage everything that I'm doing. And they then were saying that has to come out of your research funds. But it's those research funds were for the projects, for the communities, for the science. It wasn't to help me be able to manage it all. And that was where I just, I wasn't going to make those decisions to take away from my staff to support me. And again, I can understand that maybe was a bad decision because in the end I burned out and it all stopped. Although I've made so many efforts to get funding before I left so that my staff and my group could continue without me. But yeah, I, I, as I say, I think you just, the way you put it there, just put it in a different light to say, actually, I need these things. These things are reasonable to ask for because as a mother, you have these additional barriers. 
Absolutely. And this this culture in academia that we are supposed to work 24-7, if you speak to someone in another sector, they will, a lot of people say, why are you working uh, extra hours without being paid, without being compensated? <laughs> this is crazy in other sectors and we are working many hours for free. So this sort of culture has to change and we should feel that we, we, should, we can ask for this support and it should be normalized and institutions should offer this support to all employees. Another thing that it's relatively simple to do and the pandemic has shown it works is normalize flexible and remote working. This would make life so much easier for parents and caregivers and it's possible. Make meetings and seminars hybrid so that a parent who has to stay home with a sick child can still attend a lab meeting and make all meetings and events during working hours. It's even basic respect that to respect that people have the right to have a personal life, not just parents and caregivers. Everyone has the right to have a personal life and to not work on weekends. So these are things that leaders can establish in, in their institutions. It's really about leadership. And this is why we are pushing for policy change from the top down. We want to start with the leaders because you have one leader giving the example everyone in the institution will have to follow it's, it's not complicated i none, none of what i said is complicated i think we agree <laughs> we're not asking for tons of money other than investing in childcare. and we're not asking for them to spend a lot of money is is really about changing attitudes and how you see your employees as humans <laughs> basically <laughs> Thank you so much for listening today. Please take a moment to watch my TEDx talk. The YouTube link is provided in the show description. And my talk is called How to Stop Burnout Before It Starts. If your organization needs to kickstart its burnout efforts with an inspiring keynote, I can talk about my story, the science behind burnout, and the science of practice of preventing burnout from my own experience, my podcast guests, and my public health behavior change multi-level approach. Are you worried about your employees burning out? Are you losing some of your best talent, but you're too exhausted and burned out yourself to solve this problem? Are you concerned that any effort you make will be wasted, perhaps just a Band-Aid? Instead, would you like a clear roadmap for solving burnout and DI challenges in one that you can adjust to your company culture? I can provide a strategic plan of evidence-based solutions match to your needs and a blueprint to process and implement them in your workplace to improve psychological safety, reduce burnout and turnover, and ensure that your company remains a fair and value-driven company for thriving employees, where you are also no longer burned out and instead you can effectively support others. The best kickstart is through a keynote. So just contact me through my website at drjacquelinecare.com. And please remember, Burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a healthcare provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care.
Close your eyes, feel the power Everything that you 